Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey, folks. What if Jesus isn't returning anytime soon? What are we to do if this isn't true? Christians for centuries have anticipated the return of Christ, and today Abby and I welcome Keith Giles back to the show to discuss a fantastic article on this very topic. We're also going to talk about his book, Jesus Unarmed. Abby, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm always excited to talk to Keith Giles. Yeah, I mentioned to uh, Jason Porterfield when we recorded with him, I said we try to get Keith on as much as possible to keep Abby happy. (laughs) And so if we keep Abby happy, everything runs a lot smoother for the Bad Roman Project. Keith, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, Craig. Thank you so much. Thank you, Abby, for uh, always lobbying for me to uh, come back and and talk more with you guys on your podcast. So I appreciate that. Well, I think at this point, we're just going to save a seat for you. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Show up anytime. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, and there's not a lot of podcasts that have had me on four times. So thank you very much for being willing to to invite me back again and again. And uh, I've always enjoyed our, our conversations. We were talking before we hit record, you know, the different times we've been on, the different things we've talked about. And so, yeah, this is fun. I think it's going to be great to talk about this uh, article. It's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit. You talk about deconstruction quite a bit, okay? And so, and Abby and I have talked about this here in the past recently as well. When I look at deconstruction, I look at it as I'm trying to get rid of some of the toxic teachings that I that I was receiving while I was in church, okay? So it's it's been a tough road for me because I'm trying to let, let go of some of this stuff has been difficult because I, it's something that you hear every Sunday especially you spend a, a large amount of time in a Southern Baptist church mm-hmm. with this article, the idea of Jesus not coming back in our lifetime is, is, is not something a lot of Christians think about because they've been thinking about that for centuries, you know, and you mentioned it in the, in the article as well, that um, even back when they were being persecuted by the Roman empire, they thought for sure Jesus was coming back at any second. You know, and I spent a lot of my time as an evangelical Christian with my head in the clouds, looking for Jesus to come back and not doing what Jesus was instructing us to do while we're still here on this earth. It's such a distraction to me. To to me, it's a distraction to be looking for Jesus all the time. I'm not saying we shouldn't and we shouldn't anticipate it. I I mean, it's going to be a great day, right? I mean, if it happens in our lifetime, sure, it's going to be a great day, but I, it's a, to me, it can be a distraction to so many different things going on in our world. Right. And th- this is the reason why I wrote the article. And actually, I, I wrote, I was just checking on, on, on my blog. I wrote this back in 2019, actually. So it's an older article. And, and uh, since I wrote that book, uh, I published uh, an entire book on this topic of the second coming um, and the rapture and all that stuff, end times stuff. And that, so that book, if anyone's interested in the full treatment of this, of what we're about to talk about, because there's, there's stuff in that book that isn't in that article, but I, I think it's worth bringing into the conversation. So that that book is called Jesus Unexpected. And so that book is dealing with the, this whole idea of 
the end times rapture and all that. So I guess the first thing I would say, Craig, is like you said, this sort of attitude and, and, and posture that the Christian church has, especially in America, at least mine for my entire life, lifetime, as you said, you know, the posture we've had has been that Jesus is coming back any day now. It could be today. Today could be the day, right? He's coming back very, very soon. And probably in our lifetime, you know, we're closer now than we've ever been before. And then there's all these, you know, TV shows and radio shows and books that are out there about uh, if they're not predicting the the second coming of Christ, they're definitely giving you the the, the countdown, right? Oh, we're, you know, the, the doomsday clock has moved one minute closer, right? We're almost there. Jesus is coming back we're, because of what happened in Israel, what happened in the Middle East, what's going on here and there. This This maps to this verse in Revelation and this this is fulfillment of prophecy because, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, like we just, a couple of years ago, right, um, Trump declared that Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, and there you go. Now we're one step closer, right? And um, so for, we need to do two things. First, we need to talk about why Christians have this expectation, why we do always think it's it's any day now, and we're getting closer and closer, and we're watching the Middle East, and we're reading the news through sort of this lens and this filter of Bible prophecy, end times prophecy. So that's one thing we should talk about. The second thing we should talk about is um, why it's sort of counterproductive to do so. And that's, I think that's what I was mainly was talking about in the article, that as long as Christians are always thinking that Jesus is coming back any day now, what that does is put us in a holding pattern where we just basically sit and twiddle our thumbs because, well, why worry about this problem? Why worry about this issue? Because, you know, Jesus is going to come back any day now and fix it. He's going to fix the whole thing. So why do I need to be concerned? Why do I need to do any of the, you know, anything about these things? And so we, we're in this perpetual holding pattern waiting for Jesus to come and, and fix the world and fix the problems and make it all good. Um, but let me say, when I started doing research for this book about the end times, uh, what I came across was some pretty shocking stuff. Um, and that is that um, actually the, the Christian church has not been expecting uh, this sort of end time scenario to happen, and that and they've not been thinking that Jesus is coming back any day now, the way we do today. Um, this actually started in the 1830s. Prior to 1830, Christians did not read Revelation, did not think about end times, did not think about the second coming of Christ the way we do today. Um, this is the reason why it wasn't until after 1830, uh, when this guy John Nelson Darby invented what we now call end times rapture theology this whole story, this whole thing about, um, you know, the thing, basically the whole story, right? We know the, the, the left behind story, the, the late great planet earth story, the, you know, uh, all the movies we watched in youth group that scared the crap out of us, that whole scenario, right? Well, for, there's these things that we all know have to happen, right? Um, the antichrist has to show up. Everyone has to think he's a good guy. He's going to make a peace treaty with Israel. After three and a half years, he's going to break the treaty. They're going to rebuild the temple somewhere in there in Jerusalem and, uh, and, and reinstate the daily sacrifice so that when he shows up, he can go into the temple, stop the daily sacrifice, declare that he should be worshipped as God, um, create the abomination of desolation, put Christians in concentration camps if they don't take a number of 666 on their hand or their forehead, and persecute them until Jesus shall, you know, sounds the trumpet appears in the sky, shows up, kicks ass, kills kills all of our enemies and and rescues us and you know the new Jerusalem comes down being the end. That whole story is something that John Nelson Darby invented in 1830. 
Christians have not thought about end times prophecy like that until 1830. And that's why right after 1830, when, when Darby came up with that theory, is the first time you see people setting dates for the return of Christ. There's something called the Great Disappointment, right? Which happened in the eight, like 1850-something. That was the first time, um, you know, these pastors studied the scriptures, did the crazy math, and figured out, they figured out the day Jesus is coming back, and it's this day at this time, and people sold their property and went up on the mountain and waited till midnight, and nothing happened. And it was, that's why it's called the Great Disappointment. That's one of the reasons we have the Seventh-day Adventist movement. It was, a, it was an offshoot of the people that had made that prediction, and it had failed, and some people sort of still wanted to stick around, and uh, they didn't want to abandon ship, and they still went so like, okay, well, we're going to start our own thing. So, um, you know, those are, those are some things that, again, that most Christians don't realize when we talk about this end-time stuff. Like, we assume that that version of the end-times rapture that I just described was something handed to us by the apostles, but it isn't. Right. We were just talking again before we hit record about uh, John Calvin and how he invented penal substitutionary atonement theory in the 1500s. And before that, no one thought about the cross the way we think of it today. Right. It was the same thing. So th this is a very new, a very modern way of thinking. And it's something that has become the main, the dominant way that Christians think about the second coming today. And we can talk about how that happened. I can tell you historically how that ended up becoming such a dominant view. That's basically where it came from. You know, it, it's funny because I've been printing for since 1995. Okay, so that's that's been what I've been doing for, I don't know, since then. <laughs> I was 19 years old, fixing to turn 20. But I started printing in, in a newspaper. I was running a newspaper press. And when I was understanding or starting to learn about the rapture and learning about end time stuff. I was infatuated with end time prophecy and I want to learn as much as I could about it. And I remember, I, I remember setting while the press is running, go, you're going through a paper and you're checking for any kind of defects, but I always caught myself reading and just watching for something that was going on in Israel at every time. Cause, Oh, this is going to be point to the return of Christ. And I had some guys at, at, the, at work that were, part of the, you know, they were in the church of Christ. And I started talking to them about the rapture. They don't talk about the rapture. They had no idea what I was talking about. I'm like, you don't know what they're talking, what, what I'm talking about. It's in the Bible. Jesus is going to come back and we're all going to be snatched up off the ground. Our clothes are going to hit the ground. Vehicles are going to be crashing in each other. Airplanes are going to be falling out of the sky. And they're looking at me. I mean, I'm telling you, they had that head tilt. I mean, and when I looked at the other guy, he goes, do you have any idea what he's talking about? Nope. That's hilarious. <laughs> see, that's, yeah, see, that's so funny. I always, by the way, I always thought that was interesting too, that why are, why are my clothes left behind? Why do I have to be naked flying <laughs> through the sky? That seems a little disturbing. I, can I not wear clothing? That's, I don't That's, I never, I mean, that, that's not in the Bible. I don't know where that came from, but that whole idea of like, you find a pile of clothes laying there, right? Yeah. <laughs> but see, here's the other thing too. And I, you know, again, when I was doing research for this book and I, I talked to tons of people and I do this square one course also where, you know, we have people go through the, who are going through deconstruction. And so over like 150 people have gone through this so far. And as I've gone through this with them, I've, I've heard stories from them. Um, and so many people, I mean, I was too, as a young person, were traumatized by that whole idea, right? I can remember, I, I put, I have a, I have a scene in the book where I write about this. And this, this exactly is what, what I went through uh, as a young person. I'd wake up in my bed in the middle of the night and it would be so quiet. And I, would, and I would just have this intense fear. Oh my God, what if Jesus came back and I'm, and I'm alone? 
My parents have been raptured and I'm all alone. And I would get up in the middle, like two o'clock in the morning, sneak down the hallway and listen to my parents' bedroom door to see if I could hear them snoring or roll over. And you're like, and I, until I heard noise, like they were in there and they were, they were still in the house, you know, I couldn't go back to sleep. And that happened over and over and over again. I mean, I constantly had these fears. And I talked to people that are adults. I mean, there's some people that have said, you know, they're, they're grownups and they wake up with those kinds of fears that they've been left behind. Um, one was a, a guy that came home from work one day, walked into his house, and there was like a, a, a pot of a boiling water on the stove. It was boiling. Um, his little daughter had been coloring at the kitchen table. Her colors, the coloring, all the paper was sitting there. The chair was pulled back. The house was empty. There was no one in the house. His wife wasn't there. The kid wasn't there. He had this panic attack. And his wife came in like five minutes later. I said, oh, I just had to run next door. The neighbor's dog got into our yard and we know we took him back over to their house. But for that split second, he genuinely thought, oh my God, I've been left behind. So this is, you know, it's put so much fear into people as well, right? It's been this, high, this incredible source of anxiety and fear for people in addition to paralyzing the church of just like sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back and do something. So it, I, again, it's just not, a, it's not been a really good or healthy thing for the church, but it's definitely something when I wrote that article, what if Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon? Yeah, I got a lot of pushback from that. Like, what? How dare you? What do you mean? So it's, it's fun to talk about it though. It's interesting to have a conversation about it, especially to figure out not only where it came from, but like, what should we think about, you know, the, the second coming of Jesus? If it's not, this story that uh, John Nelson Darby came up with. Hey folks, Craig here. And I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors had no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page. And you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project, and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. You mentioned the, the fear side of it. It reminds me of the eternal conscious torment preaching as well, because it's like churches are trying to keep people in fear yes. to keep the pews full, to keep the tithes coming in, yep. you know, and I, and I learned all that. I listened to all that garbage for years in church, you know, and, and just like you said, you were terrified as a child. I was terrified at any moment that if one of my family members or friends who were not saved, were going to spend eternity in hell. Or what if Jesus came back? and they weren't saved, are they going to be left behind to deal with the Antichrist? You know, and that, and it was a, it was, and it was anxiety. Jesus didn't ever teach us anxiety. No. In fact, in fact, we're told you have not been given a spirit of fear, but of love and, you know, and a sound mind. And, you know, and so, yeah, and that's so funny, right? Every time Jesus ever, or even an angel appears to somebody in the Bible, what do they say? Fear not. And yet what we've, somehow we've made this whole thing about fear. Um, yeah, really sad. It is sad. But yeah, I wanted to talk about that part of your article, too, because I think it's important for Christians to understand that, yes, we can anticipate the, the return of Christ, but we shouldn't expect it at any minute now. We should still go about loving our neighbor, loving our enemy, 
spread the gospel, talking to people about Jesus, and to keep doing that. And when it happens, it happens. Because you mentioned that the people were trying to predict the return of Christ. But it's, he says specifically in the Bible that he doesn't even know. Nobody knows. So why are these people predicting this this, this, this to happen? Well, the sad thing is, I can tell you, I know the answer because there's a lot of money in it. Okay. Right. And this is the thing about it. Like, so, um, you know, you've got all these guys, Tim LaHaye and, um, you know, all the guy, Hal Lindsey, you know, there's these people that have TV shows on TBN about end times prophecy and stuff. And, um, you know, here's, here's the funny thing that I realized. Here's what all of them, every single one of them, here's what they have in common. They've all been wrong. All of them. Every single one of them. How Lindsay predicted that the human race would not last past the 80s. Um, they've all written books, predicted that the Antichrist was Saddam Hussein, or it was Gorbachev, or it was Obama, or you just fill in the blank. They've all written books. They've all put out videos. They've all, you know, uh, Hagee's Blood Moon series. Oh my gosh, that whole thing. Absolute nonsense. And uh, and here's the thing. So they're, they, they write these books. They sell millions of copies. In the end, oh, they were wrong. And yet, and here's the crazy thing, even though 100% of the time they have all been wrong, tomorrow, every one of them could put out another book and sell another million copies. Doesn't affect their credibility at all. Because uh, the Christians have this insatiable appetite. You know what I mean? Like Revelation is the most confusing book in the Bible. And the guy, anyone that shows up and says, oh, I figured it out. I cracked the code. I know what it means, everybody. Come to my conference, read my book, sign up for my video series. I'll explain the entire thing to you and I'll tell you what's going to happen. And we eat it up. People are desperate to know the future. And even if the guy gets it 100% wrong, they'll come back again next year and do it again. It, It boggles my mind, but it's the truth. Not a single one of these people are discredited. None of them are like, oh, that guy, oh, he's a quack. Nope, nope, people still respect them and buy their books and still listen to them the next time they say something about, you know, this this prediction or that prediction about the end times. Do you think that it might be, and I mentioned this to both y'all before we started recording, and this is was my mindset at the time too, that when Jesus returns, everything I've been saying has been going to be proven right. I'm going to have this sweet vindication over all of my enemies. Yes. Do you think that that type of mentality is going on in the church right now that keeps them going back to believing what these folks are, are teaching them? Yes. Yes, exactly. You're onto something. And actually, you know what? Who, who, somebody, I was talking to Phil Drysdale. This has been right, right about the time my book came out um, about the end times. And Phil Drysdale and I were talking and he pointed this out and it blew my mind. He said, you know what? The Pharisees uh, in the first century they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah. In fact, they missed Jesus because what they expected was a Messiah who was going to come, destroy all of their enemies and humiliate them, vindicate them that they have been right and everybody else is wrong, and, and punish them, all, all their enemies, and then establish a kingdom that would last forever, where basically only people who thought like them would live in this kingdom forever. And that is exactly what evangelical Christians today think about the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to destroy everybody that disagrees with us. They're going to be humiliated. We're going to be proven that we were right all along. And then Jesus is going to start have this kingdom where they're on the outside and we're on the inside. And, and it's the same exact thing. It's, we've just, you know, we've just moved the clock forward, but we have, we've become like the Pharisees. 
it's very much like the idea, like Jesus didn't get it right the first time. Right. When, when he comes back, then he's going to get it right. That's right. So we just have to sit here and wait for that to happen. I heard a little bit about end time stuff, but I wasn't really steeped in it in, until later in high school. But so anytime I hear people kind of talk that way, it always seemed weird to me. But I feel like so often... You hear people talk about something horrible that happened and they're like, oh, Jesus, come back soon. (laughs) And I think that was very much the point of your article. And it's like, no, if, you know, horrible things are happening in the world, we're here right now to be addressing those issues. We're not supposed to be just sitting here being like, oh, man, I can't wait till Jesus comes back and slaughters all the terrible people, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, to that point, to that point, Abby, in, in his article, he, he says, he says, Jesus also gave us a warning about what would happen to those servants who are found asleep at the wheel when their master returns. And it isn't pretty. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about that a little bit, because I think I think it's important for for Christians to understand this. If we're going to if you're sitting around waiting for this, you you have fallen asleep. Right. Because you're not actively seeking the kingdom of God. You're not active actively. Uh, promoting the kingdom of God. You're just sitting away, around waiting for him to return. So your life's going to get easier, better, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I phrased it that way in the article, because again, I'm ta- I know my audience and I know that they're, the people I'm talking to really do think like, oh my gosh, we got this warning. We better not be sitting around doing nothing. But you know, here, here's what I found fascinating. Um, there is something in Romans chapter eight, Paul gives us, he tells us specifically uh, that all creation is groaning for something. All, all of creation is groaning at this moment for something to happen. And it's not the second coming of Christ. And that was one of the things when I was researching this book uh, on the end times that I was like, wow, isn't that fascinating? What Paul says in Romans eight nineteen is that all of creation is waiting in eager expecta- expectation or all of creation is groaning for this, for the, for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. That's us. This is the premise. This is what I what I came down to. First of all, all of those New Testament prophecies, some Old Testament, there's some there's some prophecies in Daniel that get worked into uh, like the seven weeks of Daniel, seventy weeks of Daniel, um, get worked into um, Darby's end times rapture theory. But of course, most of it is you know First Thessalonians uh, that whole. That's where we get this idea of we'll be caught up in the sky and and all that stuff. Um, what I'll, we'll talk about that in a second. What that's really talking about. That's the only place, by the way, that says anything like that. But, you know, it's like a few verses in Revelation, a few verses in 1 Thessalonians, a few things in Daniel, the 70 weeks of Daniel, and uh, Matthew 24, which is the Olivet Discourse. It's also it's also repeated in Mark, and it's repeated in Luke as well. So it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And both of, uh, all three of them uh, record this Olivet Discourse. And that's where most Christians get this idea of the end times. These are the signs of the end times, Right. And in my book, what I do is I go through um, all three of them side by side. I, you know, I go because they're 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 almost verbatim, but there are slight differences between, especially with Luke and Mark and Matthew. Um, and once in a while, when there are some deviations, that's helpful because it shows it, it helps reveal. Oh, that's what this means. That's what this is talking about. So in the book, I go through. There's a whole very long chapter where I just go through verse by verse for for that Olivet discourse as it's recorded in Matthew 24 and uh, the parallels in Mark and in Luke. And we talk about what is Jesus really talking about? Because this is one of the biggest, biggest mistakes. Because Christians think 
that in Matthew 24, what Jesus is describing is the end of the world. This is not what he's describing. And that you can just, anybody listening to this podcast right now, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew 24, read the beginning. And if you just start reading from the beginning, straight through to the end, Jesus explains everything. It's right there in black and white. The whole thing starts with Jesus, um, and I think it's Peter and, and, and John. Um, they're coming out of the temple in Jerusalem, right? And they they stop and they call Jesus' attention to this temple. And they're like, Jesus, ah, look at this magnificent temple. Have you seen it? Can you imagine anything better than this? This is the most impressive, impressive, amazing temple anyone could imagine. Isn't it glorious? And Jesus says to them, well, the day is coming soon when not one stone of this temple will be left upon the other, but it will all be thrown to the ground. Now they're shocked and they say, what? Well, Jesus, tell us when will these things be and what will be the signs that this will come to pass? They keep on walking. He goes up to the, to the Mount of Olives. They all sit down with all the other disciples. And then he answers their question. These are the signs of, of the what he says is the end of the age. The end of the age is not the end of the world. The end of the age, by the way, is what, uh, if you go, go back to Daniel, when Daniel talks about the, the, the 70 weeks of Daniel, Daniel also prophesies the end of the age. Again, not the end of the world. It's the end of the Jewish age. In other words, it's the, there was a prediction made in Daniel, and Jesus is, is updating like the, the details of this. And, and the end of the age is signified when the main, you know, sort of the heart of Jewish worship is removed, which is the temple and the priesthood and the daily sacrifice, right? I mean, that's according to Jewish law, according to Old Testament, without a daily sacrifice, without you know coming to the feast and festivals and offering the lamb and sending it to the priest and following all these things and you know and then having this performed in the temple, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's no there's no uh, redemption, right? There's no, all those things, right? So um, this is central. This is the central heart and core of the Jewish faith: is the temple, the priesthood, and the daily sacrifice. So when Jesus says that this temple is going to be destroyed. Uh, and completely knocked to the ground, uh, of course, the disciples are concerned. Whoa, 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 when is this going to happen? Okay, let me tell you about the end of the age, the end of the Jewish age, which they would have known. And then in the process of Matthew 24, in the process of Jesus explaining what that, what those signs are, um, he uses something called apocalyptic hyperbole, and all this is in the book. But there's an overlap. You, you mentioned like, the, like hell, like the doctrine of eternal torment. So there's an overlap between a lot, of the, a lot of the verses that people will point to when Jesus, they'll say, this is why they say, no one talks about hell more than Jesus. That's not true. But what, what they mean is um, there are verses that Jesus quotes, the things that Jesus says, uh, a lot of it in Matthew 24, by the way, talking about the end of the age, the destruction of the temple that's going to happen. But if you take it literally, right, he, t- he uses phrases like there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the smoke of the torment rises forever and ever, and, you know, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and all that stuff. So we take those phrases from Jesus and we say, aha, he's talking about eternal torment. No, he's not. He's actually quoting Old Testament prophets who are also using apocalyptic hyperbole. Um, and in the book, I give examples for all these things. Um, like in, um, I can't remember all the, the specific verses, but it's like, uh, there's like, there's a passage where um, I think it's in Hosea, where uh, he, he uses apocalyptic hyperbole to um, speak a, a, a prophecy of judgment against like Edom, 
right? And he'll say, um, oh, woe is you, Edom. This is going to happen to you, and the moon will fall from the sky, and the sun will not give its light, and the stars will fall, and the, the earth, you know, the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, and uh, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So now he's talking about what's going to happen and what did happen to the nation of Edom uh, a few years after he prophesied this. And the way it was fulfilled was, you know, the Babylonians surrounded the city, killed most everybody, and took them as slaves. And you see the exact same language when Isaiah pre preaches a prophecy um, against Jerusalem and, and against Israel. Uh, and it's fulfilled when the Babylonians come and, and you know, and surround them or the Egyptians. Um, and so it's it, that kind of language, that apocalyptic hyperbole, is used all the time. It's this over-the-top, cosmic, end-of-the-world kind of language. But in every single case, it was fulfilled in a very normal, real-world way when basically one army defeated the other army and took them captive. So when Jesus is using those same kinds of phrases, well, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and the stars fall from the sky and all that stuff, his disciples, they hear him and they're like, oh, he's playing the hits. I remember that. My, my grandma, she used to love that passage in Jeremiah. Man, we used to read that all the time before bedtime. So they know they know what he's doing. They, they those phrases are very familiar to them, and especially when he says it in the context of a judgment against Israel that he says is coming uh, in the lifetime of some of them standing there. He says, "Some of you standing here will not taste death until everything I have said has come to pass." Not most of it, all of it, everything. What that means is that everything Jesus says in Matthew twenty four is all about, number one, it's all about the destruction of the temple. And it's something that will happen, he says, very soon in the lifetime of the disciples. And, and by the way, he was right, because it was fulfilled in AD 70, roughly like 30 years after he said this, all of these things came to pass, just like he said it would. Now, it, again, he's using this figurative metaphoric language, but it's fulfilled um, when the Roman army surrounds Jerusalem, kills millions of Jews, and destroys the temple, and and ended the daily sacrifice, brought an end to the Jewish priesthood, which, let me check my watch, it's 2022, and guess what? It's still destroyed. And there is still no Jewish priesthood, and there's still no Jewish daily sacrifice, and at the end of the age is still ended. So what Jesus prophesied would happen, it happened. But it's not, it's not literally Jesus returning, and it's not literally, in the, in the other passages, talking about some you know post-mortem torment that we're going to go through. So a, a lot of this comes from a misunderstanding of just exactly that, not understanding what apocalyptic hyperbole is, not recognizing that it's used all through the Old Testament and how it's used and what it is and what it isn't. If you clearly understand that, then you're not confused when you read Matthew 24. He's only talking about the destruction of the temple, and he says everything will be fulfilled, and all of it was. So that means that we cannot turn to Matthew 24 to figure out any sort of ideas of well, what's the second coming going to look like? Because that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that at all. So I apologize. That was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. I was, I was, I was going to read something out of your article again and, and kind of kind of play off of that a little bit. Because I, 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 the main reason I wanted to do this portion of the show was because it's something that I see a lot of Christians still worried about. I was talking to a guy at work the other day, and I just asked him, how he was doing. And, it, and he, he said, Oh man, you know, I'm just waiting on the world to end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was, and I laughed about it and, and we talked about it some, you know, last night at work too, because it, it, that's kind of a mentality that a lot of Christians have right now. Cause they're just kind of just, a lot of people are tired, I guess, you know, people have been, been run over quite a bit and they're just tired and they think that you, 
it's going to end soon and it's going to be better at that with that mentality we're get to a we would be get to a standstill and we're not doing anything yeah we're coasting we're just coasting we're co- to the finish line. that's a great <laughs> great way to describe it. we're coasting because yeah. just waiting on this to happen but i think we have to keep working keep plugging along because if we're being complacent you're not promoting the kingdom of god you're you're yeah coasting yeah. and nothing is nothing is fruitful is coming from you hey folks Craig here again. As you know, this project is completely self-funded by me and all profits go straight to charities here in Memphis. If you have a blog, a podcast, or a product that you would like to advertise on the Bad Roman Podcast, the first 15 folks to sign up for four ad spots with us will get a fifth spot for free. Visit thebadroman.com slash ads. I'm so happy how this project has grown and thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the conversation. Yeah. And so now here's again, the, the, so now I apologize because this stuff, some of this stuff I'm saying is not in the article. So I, again, I, I went, I went beyond the article um, after it was written and, and researching this stuff, but, but, but here's, here's something that to me was the most exciting thing that I came across and it's, it's controversial. I will admit it. So I know a lot of Christians are not, it's, it's hard for them to just kind of to get it right away. It may be something you need to think about for a little bit. But here is the conclusion that I've come to when it comes to this whole idea of the second coming of Christ. I think that actually the way Jesus talks about it to his disciples, like if you turn to John, the Gospel of John chapter 14, what he tells the disciples is, he says, I'm going away, and if I go away, I will prepare a place to you that where I am, you will be also. But a couple of verses later, he explains what that means. He says, if you love me, my Father and I will love you. And we will both come together and make our home in you. So where is Jesus right now? Where is the Father right now? Not in heaven. Jesus says, the Father and the Son have come and made their home in us. So Christ abides in us and we abide in Christ. If heaven is where Christ is and where where God is and where we live with God, guess where heaven is? in your chest, in your body, in your heart, in your spirit, because that's where Christ and the Father dwell right now, number one. So I don't think we're waiting for something like that. We're not waiting for something to happen because Christ has said um, that he has prepared a place and that place is in us. That's what the whole new covenant is about. The entire new covenant that Jesus proclaimed and that he said he came to proclaim and did. Um, The whole point of the new covenant is that I will be their God and they will be my people. And no one will say to their neighbor, know the Lord, because everyone will have an opportunity to know me directly. And that's because, you know, at Pentecost, the the Spirit of of God was poured out on all flesh, young and old, men and women, Jews and Gentiles. There's no other category. There's Jews and Gentiles and who else? If you're a Jew, the only other category is Gentile. So everybody— so um, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, has been poured out in all flesh. Um, Christ has come and the Father have come to abide in us. And so Paul also, when Paul uses this phrase quite often when he talks about um, the church, he says that we are the incarnation of Christ. And this is my controversial statement. There is more of Christ in the world right now than there was 2,000 years ago. And this, to me, is what I call the slow motion second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ started, um, I guess you could technically say at at the resurrection, but maybe more more technically at Pentecost. 
But it, uh, however, wherever you want to put the, the pin in the calendar, it doesn't matter. The point is it's already in motion. Um, Christ is coming into the world. Christ has, has come to the world in, in a single person, right? We know that Christ was in, Jesus was, was the Christ. But now that Christ has died, Paul says that because Christ died, all have died. Because Christ has risen, we have all been raised with him. Because Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, we are all seated at the right hand of the Father. And so because it's true of Christ, it's true of all of us. Um, and so Christ is in us. And every single time Christ is awakened and becomes alive inside another person, every single time somebody comes to Christ and says, I'm, I, I love Christ, I want to I follow Christ, and I want to abide in Christ, and Christ abides in me, there's just one more bit of Christ in the world than there was yesterday. And that will continue. And nothing that is inevitable. And nothing will ever stop that. And so to me, this is how I understand the second coming of Christ. I actually think this is the way that Jesus and Paul describe the second coming. The, the word in our English translations for, um, for the coming of Christ, whenever you see that, that phrase being used in the New Testament, it's just the Greek word parousia, and it just means the presence. So is the presence of Christ here? Is the presence of Christ in, in the body of, in the church? Yes. <laughs> uh, that it's, it's, of course it is, right? Uh, that's where Christ is. Christ is in us. Christ in you, Paul says, the hope of glory. Not Christ in the sky, not Christ in the clouds, not Christ coming soon to a, to a theater near you. No, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so again, that's why Paul says in Romans, in Romans 8, all creation is groaning for one thing to happen, and it isn't the return of Christ. It's it's for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. I think what he's saying is what all creation is groaning for is for Christians to wake up and realize that Christ is already in them. And again, stop twiddling your thumbs. Stop waiting for Jesus to come back and fix it. Because I think Christ is actually looking down and going, we're not looking down because he's not up there. Christ in us is going, when are you guys going to wake up and get it? When are you going to wake up and realize who you are? I, I've talked about it like uh, another metaphor to think of it as like, in the old way of thinking about the second coming, it was sort of like, um, we're, like again, we're all just kind of sitting back. It's like we bought a ticket to a movie, to the big blockbuster film, right? Um, and it's, it's the, we've seen the trailer and it's huge, man. There's like stones falling out of the sky and hailstones of 100-pound weights and 10-headed dragons coming out of bottomless pits and massive armies fighting on this massive, you know, battlefield, you know, Armageddon and Jesus in the sky with his sword to come out of his mouth. Damn, that's going to be a great movie. I can't wait to see that movie. We bought a ticket. We're sitting there and we're watching the trailer. We're just waiting for that movie to start. That's, we're just waiting, right? Hurry up, get to the movie, get to the movie, get, play that movie. I can't wait to see this movie. And that's kind of the way the, the way the second coming uh, in times rapture theory, that's what it's done to the church. It's put our butts in the seats. We've got our ticket. We're just waiting for this awesome movie to play. Now, the way I'm talking about it, the way I think Jesus and Paul in the New Testament, the early church thought about the second coming of Christ is more like you're laying in bed asleep, middle of the night, total pitch dark, you know, and all of a sudden Jesus appears to you in your bedroom. <gasps> What's going on? And Jesus hands you a lightsaber and he says, do you want to overcome the evil empire? Do you want to save the princess? I need your help. Let's go. In other words, we each have received as a unique invitation to participate ourselves, not to watch a movie about it, but to actually be an active participant, a necessary participant in the coming of Christ to the world by being and incarnating Christ in our own life every day. And every single one of us 
has been given that invitation. That is way more exciting than, I mean, I think it is anyway. Some people are like, no, I just want to see that awesome movie. Uh, roll, the, roll the footage, right? Um, and th- this is kind of the tension. Like when I, when I talk about this with people, we are so addicted to that, that at, we've seen that trailer and man, it's cool. I just want to see that movie. Um, it doesn't matter how many times people tell me that the movie's coming and it keeps getting canceled. Oh, now it's been delayed. What's coming back? Well, next, come back next weekend. It'll be, it'll be playing next weekend. It'll come next weekend. Oh no, it's been delayed. It'll be out next month. Um, but we, we're still addicted to it. Right. But, um, I, I don't know. I think to me, it's much more exciting to recognize that, oh my gosh, no, I've been given a personal invitation to participate with what God is doing to transform the world into the kingdom of God. One person at a time, starting with me, right? I think that's way more exciting, but, you know, not everyone agrees. <laughs> I like that idea. I didn't, I wouldn't have ever, I've, I've never heard that. Well, used to, I never heard it talked about like that. It, it reminded me, I was li- listening to you talk and I was thinking about an old pastor reminded. Southern Baptist fire brimstone type, and he's very animated oh, on stage, yeah. and he'd stomp the stage, and yes. just, you know, just and he was always talking, and he always talking about the mansions that, that that God has prepared for us, and he was strut across the stage and say, "My mansion is going to be just just talking about how great his mansion is going to be," and he's talking about all the crowns he's building up that, that Jesus is going to hand him when he when he enters the pearly gates and stuff, and that was just the. It's a show. <laughs> it's like buying a ticket for a movie. That's what it is. And they make it sound like all this. But you, you mentioned uh, creation groaning for the sons and daughters to be revealed. In other words, it's groaning for Christians to start acting like Christians. Yes, exactly. And I think that's what it boils down to. Now, I think we could talk about this the whole show, but I want to talk about your your, your book, Jesus Unarmed. Or Abby wants to talk about this. She's... she. She has had a a chance to read it. I have not. So I'm going to kind of be a spectator and listen to this. I might chime in a little bit, you know, if I hear something that okay. I want to say to them, but I'll try and keep my mouth shut because I know Abby is prepared for this portion of the show. So I'm going to give it to Abby and let her talk to you about that book. Yeah. And I, and I think they connect really well because it's like, we're not sitting here waiting for the kingdom to show up. We're creating the kingdom right now. And Jesus unarmed shows us how we create the kingdom by being nonviolent. And I think I wanted to also say, I totally agree with you that it's so much more exciting that it's like we're participating in bringing the kingdom right now. We're not waiting for it to show up. And I think it's also a different perspective where you can look and, I guess, kind of be on the lookout where the kingdom is showing up in your everyday life. And like, I don't know, like when you're kid does something really cool, you can be like, oh man, that's just like the kingdom of God right there. Or like when you just like have a really good friend or have a really good conversation, you're like, oh, this is the kingdom of God right here. Like this is what it's all about. Like it's already here and we can see it and it's awesome. Right. Um, yeah. So Jesus Unarmed <clears throat> being the last one in your Jesus Un series, which um, yes, I absolutely loved every single one of those books. Thank you. I think I said before, it was like you wrote all of these things as I was kind of coming to realizations about them. Like, <laughs> like they, you wrote them just for me. But yeah, so we we talk about pacifism and nonviolence a lot on the show. So I thought this was a really good one to talk about too. The first thing that I really loved um, that you talked about was how Jesus says that we are to be nonviolent 
because that's what God is like. Yes. And I think we come across so many people, I don't know, it's confusing. They uh, want to still have this violent picture of God, even if they believe we ourselves as Christians shouldn't be violent. And I think it it's so important to focus on like, no, Jesus said, we act like this because this is what God is like. And so I think that you really need to have a different picture of God in your head to even make nonviolence possible. Because if you think we're not violent, but God's just saving up all the violence for himself or like certain violence God is okay with or whatever, really changes your perspective on this. But to really embrace nonviolence and pacifism, you have to also embrace that we're we're doing it because this is what God is like and this is how God is asking us to bring the kingdom create the world in his, in his vision by doing things in a way that doesn't make sense to the world so i don't know if you have more to say on that yeah no that's a good point and i, I do try to make that point in the book that uh cuz i do I, I agree i think it's really fascinating when the, the famous thing that jesus says in the sermon on the mount right that whole um you know, love your neighbor as yourself and turn the other cheek and bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and overcome evil with good. That's where we get this whole idea, right? Of like, this is why all of us are like, no, I'm following Jesus. And that's why I believe I'm supposed to to do all those things, right? Turn the other cheek and love my neighbor and all that stuff is because Jesus said so. But when Jesus says so, he he gives a reason why. He doesn't just say do it. It's not just do it. Why? So we can be uh, doormats. We're just supposed to get our butts kicked, and that somehow that brings glory to God. Like this doesn't make any sense. So Jesus connects the dots. He says you should do these things because when you do those things, you will you are like God. You are doing what God does. The, Jesus does this a lot, where he will he equates quite often this idea of you know I can tell who you who your father is by who by what you do. Right. He has that famous debate with the Pharisees. Right where uh, he says that God is his father and they go, oh, we know who our, our father is, you know, uh, sort of like a jab because there was probably, a, the, the the rumor was going around that we weren't sure who Jesus' father was, right? Was Joseph really is your, you know, your father? Because there was some, there was some rumors going on around that through your birth, right? There's something fishy going on. So there's kind of a dig they give him right there. We know who our father is. Our father is Abraham. And so Jesus has this whole conversation. No, if Abraham was your father, you would do the things Abraham did. So there's this idea of like, you you get to reflect who your father truly is if you behave the way your father does. And if you don't, well, then it's sort of like, now you're not. You're not lining up with who your father really is. And this is what Jesus does in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, you should love your enemy, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. Because when you do these things, you will be like your father in heaven because he. this is what he does, right? He lets it rain on the just and on the unjust. Um, he blesses those who love him and he blesses those who don't love him. And so that's why we do it because it's what God does. There's a whole lot going on there, by the way. There's a there, there's this other very, it's kind of subtle if you don't really know what he's doing. Uh, when he hinges the whole thing on, by doing this, you're going to be like your father in heaven because he also does this because he blesses, you know, he brings rain on the just and on the unjust. By the way, though, that's a, an absolute uh, contradiction of what it's, what Moses says in Deuteronomy. Because Moses and Deuteronomy, and they all, again, they knew that because what Moses says is, um, no, God, if you, if you love God, God will bless your crops 
and you know it'll rain, you have abundance of rain and all this kind of stuff, and your crops will grow. But if you hate God and curse God and you don't you don't follow God, then God will curse you and he'll dry, he'll send a famine or you know a drought, and it'll dry up your land and your crops will die and your family will be cursed. So when Jesus says in the midst of this whole thing, like you know, that's why he starts the whole thing, you've heard it said quotes Moses, but I say to you, and he says something different. He's continuing that whole thought, even to this point when he says, again, love your enemy, lest those to curse you. Why? Because this is what God does. And how do I know this? Because God brings rain on the just and on the unjust, which is a contradiction of Moses and Deuteronomy. So the whole thing hinges not just on, well, Jesus said it. It also hinges on Jesus having the authority to correct some misunderstandings about who God was, right? That God isn't violent and wrathful and angry. I know you thought that's you thought that's who God was, but that's why in the Gospel of John, it, in the first chapter, is this radical statement that the, the you know John says right there in chapter one of the Gospel of John: "No man has ever seen God at any time, except for the Son, and He came to make the Father known to us." The only reason we need someone to make the Father known to us is because we didn't know who the Father was until Jesus came, and it, without Jesus. You would, you would assume that God was the way Moses said he was. Angry, wrathful, vengeful, only blesses those who love him, curses those who don't love him. Jesus shows up and says, nope, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at me. And I'm going to tell you what the Father is like. And I'm sorry, this contradicts Moses, but I'm telling you, the Father isn't like that. He's like this. And that's why you should be like this. So there's a whole lot writing on this, uh, on that entire section there of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a radical thing. Most Christians don't really get it. I think maybe this is why we don't get it. Because there are all these kind of things, these, we have these assumptions that, oh, Jesus only affirmed everything in the Old Testament, and Jesus only, uh, you know, affirmed everything that Moses said. And that isn't the case. So we have to kind of relax our grip a little bit on some of our assumptions about what Jesus was doing and, and what, what his mission was. Right, totally. And I think it's hard for Christians, modern Christians, to grasp how radical Jesus was and how much he changed things. And it's like you kind of have that idea of like, oh yeah, they were expecting like a violent warrior Messiah and he was different. But it's like, no, he really, really was different. <laughs> really. And it, and like you talk about in, in Jesus Untangled in several of your books, the flat Bible theory that so many Christians think that every verse in the Bible has equal weight when really... Jesus came and and really did change things and and we have to reinterpret the Old Testament through who Jesus was because he showed us who God really is. So That's I right. think the with the flat Bible theory you get the just war theory and things like that because it's like well no the the verses where God is cursing people or commanding war have just as much weight as Jesus saying, love your enemies. So it, you have to balance those things. You kind of have to be like, well, yeah, sometimes nonviolence is good and sometimes violence is good. But it's like, no, Jesus totally corrected that. Violence is always bad. And that is not what God is like whatsoever. That's right. That's right. And see, that's the, you're exactly right. It does boil down to that. That's really why a lot of times I'll, people will ask me like, um, well, you know, if I'm going to read your Jesus on series, which one should I start with? And they're like, well, I didn't write them to be read in any certain order. You can read them whatever order you want. But I do recommend if you haven't read any of them, you probably should start with Jesus Unbound because in that book, I do, I, I, I cover this very fundamental question, like you just said, of the way we approach the Bible. If you approach the Bible from a flat Bible perspective, 
which is the only way I was raised to read the Bible. I didn't know there was another way to read the Bible. Um, then, if, but if you approach it from a flat Bible perspective, then you're, you're going to be locked into um, these kind of Old Testament ideas of God. He's wrathful. He's jealous. He's angry. You know, all these kind of things. He's 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 a warrior. All those things. But if you take a Jesus-centric approach, if you if you again read it through the lens of Christ, and I believe Jesus said we should do this. I believe Paul affirms this. Um, this is the whole point of the, the Mount of Transfiguration, right? This is my son. Listen to him. But the father says to Peter, James, and John, because uh, you know they want to elevate Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets, equal to Jesus. That's the flat Bible mistake. That's what Peter wants to do. Hey, let's you know, let's make three tabernacles, one for each of you, and we're going to honor you all three equally. And then the father's response is to remove Moses, the law, remove Elijah, the prophets. He leaves only Jesus, and he says, "Listen to him. This is my son." And that's uh, that's what the early church did, and that's what the Anabaptists did, and they got in trouble for it. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's a, such a key thing to get to have like a paradigm shift, right? It's a different way of thinking about the Bible. If you can approach the Bible that way, if you can see that, wow, this is the way I'm supposed to approach the Bible. Um, you know, it's it's said over and over again. The you know, Hebrews begins that way. And in times past, God spoke to us through prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, who is the exact representation of the Father. So, yeah, shouldn't we listen to Jesus? Doesn't doesn't every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? And doesn't that include Moses? Yes. Doesn't that include all of the Old Testament prophets? Yes, they're going to bend the knee. They're going to proclaim that He's Lord. And so he gets the final say. And I think when when I first read that, my brain exploded. And I was like, <laughs> I totally, I think that I weight every verse in the Bible equally, but I don't even really do that. Like definitely some, I'm like, yes, that's literally true. And others, I'm like, oh, who knows what that means? Let's not really <laughs> think about that too much. But it it was never like conscious or purposeful until I read that and it's like, oh my gosh, there's no possible way to weight everything in the Bible equally. So I no. might as well do it intentionally through the lens of Christ to make it all make sense and consistent because man, is it really difficult to try and think that everything in the Bible is equally authoritative. <laughs> right, yes. Listen to you guys talk. It reminds me of something that you said to me and Abby on the first time we had you on the show. And you said the human capacity to get things wrong is endless. Okay. And I think that that needs to be understood with the Bible, too, because I've, I've noticed a lot with Christians, a lot with Christians lately, that it's like they feel like every word that was put down in the Bible, God was directing that pen by the prophets, by every person. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And I don't believe that anymore. I used to believe that. I don't believe that I, because I believe a lot of that stuff was flawed human beings writing day things down. And they could have got something wrong along the way. And that really pisses a lot of Christians off when you say that to them. Because you see uh, you see a lot of Christians putting the Bible above Jesus. Okay, and so in that, that very book, the Bible says that Jesus is the Word of God. Not the Bible, but Jesus. Well, and there's so much like literary context and historical context yes. and, and cultural things that we don't understand anymore. And... Yeah. There's just so much there to unpack. I used to try to correct people, you know, like somebody will say like, the Bible is uh, my foundation. I go, wow, that's funny because you're contradicting the Bible when you do that. Because according to the Bible, 
there is no foundation other than Christ. Um, or like, you know, the Bible is our only source and standard for truth. Really? Because according to the Bible, Jesus is the truth and only Jesus is the truth. <laughs> and, um, you know, all those kind of things. So like, again, like I see it a lot where like the Bible gets elevated above Christ. Um, just the other day, a friend of mine, I love this guy today. I'm not going to say his name because I love him. I respect him. But, um, but he does this all the time. He posted something the other day on Facebook and he said, and it was like one of those big posts, right? Big, big kind of, um, had a graphic behind it, you know, it kind of stood out. And he said something like, um, I'm paraphrasing. He said something like, I have been reading the Bible for most of my life and I read it every day. And yet I still want to know more about the Bible. And so my reply, all I said was, I have been walking with Christ since I was a young man my whole life. I talk to Jesus every day, and yet I still want to know Jesus more. And then he replied and said, amen, brother. And I said, yeah, but do you understand the difference between what you said and what I said? You have a relationship with a book. I'm talking about a connection with Christ. And why is it that the one thing you felt so important to put in capital letters with this big graphic on your Facebook page was how much you love this book and not Jesus? And that's what drives me crazy. I don't, half the time you could just take any statement Christians make about the Bible and replace it with Christ. And then I would say, I have no problem with that. Amen. I think that's true. But why don't you make it uh, say Jesus or Christ? You make it say the Bible. The Bible will change your life. The Bible will change our nation. The Bible will say, no, it won't do any of those things. It's a book. Christ will do those things, but not that book. And it just, it drives me nuts. Yeah. So another part of the book that was really cool, you quote a lot from Why Civil Resistance Works, Nonviolence in the Past and Future by Erica Chenoweth. Chenoweth, yes. And there's all these examples of how people have used nonviolence nonviolent resistance to accomplish a goal. And also a study, or I don't know if it was just one study done, but basically that nonviolent campaigns were almost twice as successful as violent insurrections. And the trend is that they're becoming more successful over time, which is so awesome because a lot of what you say in the book too is like, it's not about either blowing someone's brains out or doing absolutely nothing. It's not about trying to be a doormat. It's about being really active in your peacemaking. Right. So to see statistics backing it up and examples of how nonviolence actually is more successful than using violence, I don't think anybody would expect that or realizes that, but it's like, yeah, the, if this is how we bring about the kingdom, God isn't giving us a mission that's going to fail that just results in all Christians being wiped out. Like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, and, and thank you for bringing that up too, because like Erica Chenoweth is, to me, she's the gold standard. She has done this incredible research. Her book is amazing. Um, there's, a, there's, You can watch like a two-hour presentation she gives on the book on YouTube that's phenomenal. But yeah, I mean... Yeah, she documented like over 300 cases uh, going back, actual cases, right? Going back through history. And uh, like you said, she found that nonviolence resistance was more, had a, had a better track record, more effective track record for success than violence. And um, that's from 1900 to 2006. Uh, what's funny is no one was more surprised or shocked by that outcome than Erica. And she says this, like, 
she, as a researcher, totally thought, oh, we're going to find like, you know, two to 5% of the time nonviolent resistance works. But, you know, most of the time the violence is going to work. No, it was the, it was absolutely just resoundingly the opposite. And so this is what's crazy too, is that, you know, just taking it out of a Christian spiritual context, just looking at the data in, in, you know, again, 300 different cases in history from 1900 to 2006. And when you see is that, oh my gosh, that it's more, more than twice as likely for nonviolence to be effective than violence. The data is there. I mean, the proof is there. Nonviolence is what works, not violence. And so that alone should make people interested to go, well, what are we missing here? And again, it's like this thing that Jesus, again, that's why I feel like Jesus is so genius, right? When he shows up and gives us this idea of loving our enemies, it's like, guys, it's almost like he's saying not just to his own people there, uh, you know, in, in Palestine, who are listening to him at the Sermon on the Mount, but he's saying to us through through the New Testament, He's saying to all of humanity, guys, you keep doing the same thing over and over again. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Every time somebody, oh, you hit me, I'll hit you. You disrespect me, I disrespect you. You kill me, I kill three of you. You kill five of me, I kill your whole village. You kill my village, I wipe out your whole tribe. Like, when does it end? Guys, you keep doing this. And guess what? Every time you do, it doesn't work. So here's here's the thing. Just try this one thing. You've never tried it before. What if instead of hating your enemy, what if you love them? What if you bless them, right? What if you just try it? I know it sounds crazy, but you haven't. it's the one thing you haven't tried yet. And then what we see is that the research is when people try it, well, look at that. It works. What do you know? It actually does. And so, yeah, you can, in the book, I go into a lot of details of it. There's some great examples of it too. There's a great documentary called Pray the Devil Back to Hell um, about these Christian and Muslim women, moms. Uh, in Liberia that had a nonviolent resistance and ended up overthrowing, ending the, the, uh, there was like child soldiers being used and um, the civil war that was going on and all of this stuff. And they end up not only ending that war, they overthrow the dictator. And one of the women who was part of the, part of the nonviolent resistance ends up becoming the new leader of the country and brought peace to the whole nation. It was phenomenal. That's just one example. So like, yeah, there's tons of examples of how it does work. We just have, it's the thing we haven't tried yet. And it's so counterintuitive too. Like even with my mm-hmm. kids, yes. I'd say I'm like, you have to be the one who decides that I'm going to make a different choice because, you know, they'll say like, well, he, he deserved it. He hit me first kind of thing. There's a really great episode of Malcolm in the Middle, which I love that show. But it's um, Malcolm and Reese, and it starts like from the end of a fight of them like doing things to get back at each other. And so it starts, they're just doing like absolutely horrible, horrible things to each other. And it keeps tracing it back, tracing it back of their back and forth. And it started out that one took a blueberry off the other's plate. (laughs) And it ends up with them like completely destroying each other's things and stuff. And it's such a great metaphor for all like human conflict. It's like you you have to stop it somewhere or it's going to keep escalating to the point where you can't even remember how it started, but it was like a blueberry. And you're right. See, that's right. And and Jesus is actually saying that. Like in that moment, that first sort of thing that happens, right? Whether they slap your face or they disrespect you, whatever. That right there in the very, very beginning, that's where you can turn the whole thing around. You don't wait till it escalates. You don't wait till it gets to this horrible, you know, level. 
Um, and see, this is the this is the way nonviolence has the power. With the real power of it is that it disarms that whole thing right off the bat. It disarms that that you know uh, retaliation right off the bat. So someone does something to you, and you respond with love and mercy and forgiveness, and and it changes it right. It stops it right there, and it changes them too. And I think that's a major part of it is you have to work to see the humanity and even the person who's trying to hurt you. Yeah. Yes. Which isn't easy, but it it really changes, it changes their heart. That's the only thing that's going to change their heart. If you think about using violence, like, yeah, I could use violence to physically stop someone from hurting me, but it, it doesn't change their heart. So they no longer want to hurt me, which is what meeting them with love actually does. There's so many examples of that of, of of folks on death row, or or potential death row, where where the families of who had family members murdered by somebody, where the families refused to accept the death penalty, and it changed that person's person. It changed them, you know, to start seeking a better yeah. way. And there's so many examples of that of folks in prison for that, you know. Yeah, no, and I, 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 I did my best to include real world examples of of that kind of thing where it has worked, like person to person kind of stuff like that. And there are examples like that of you know someone that murdered someone's child, and then the parent comes and visits them and loves them and shows them love they'd never know what love was before, and it transforms them, it changes them. Um, you know that that Amish school shooting years ago, where the that Amish community's response was to immediately, I mean, the day it happened, they went and. Um, you know, showed up and showed mercy and compassion uh, to the wife and the children of the man who had killed their own kids. Uh, and then also to the mother uh, of that man. Uh, to this day, the mother of the man that shot and killed those kids in that Amish school shooting, she cares for one of the one of the survivors because uh, she was sort of like, had brain damage and stuff and some physical disabilities as a result of, she didn't die from the shooting, but she was, you know, injured really badly. And the mother is a caretaker for that for that little girl. That's only possible because she was immediately, that family was immediately shown mercy and compassion and forgiveness right on day one. And again, it's like such a beautiful and astounding thing, right? When you see this. Now, I got to say though, there's a caveat here. And I try to say, I try to point this out in the book. I, I Again, I, I went out of my way to give real world examples of when people have responded to violence with a hug or with love or with something unexpected and it disarms that person and all the good stories, all the, all the, all the happy stories, right? And those are real and they're out there and there's lots of examples of that. But let's be honest. There are times when you, someone will come after you and you will respond with love and they will kill you. And, and exhibit A is this guy, Jesus. And so who gave us the, the mandate in the first place? So this whole idea of like, you know, yes, it works. Um, there are, in other words, there are plenty of times we can say and show and demonstrate, yes, it does work. There are times when it will not work, and in those cases, you will die. But this is the reason why Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross now. Die now. Understand that you, your life is over. You're going to die anyway. I, you know, I, I try to stress this in the book. What Jesus is saying to us is, guys, if you, you know, he says the whole thing. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, for my sake, you'll save it for eternity, right? And so it's this, what he, paraphrasing, what he's saying is like, you're so afraid you're going to die, so you feel like you have to defend yourself. You have to fight back, right? Listen, you're going to die anyway. You're, it's inevitable. We're all going to die. Here's the question. Would you like to die imitating Christ? Would you, if you die, how, what better way to die 
than in the act of loving somebody who hates you the way Jesus did. Whoa, if you're a follower of Christ, you, you should say, yes, that's beautiful. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm just going to love everybody. I'm going to respond in love to everybody. And hey, if it works, great. I get to do it again tomorrow. But if one day somebody comes at me and they've got a weapon and I respond in love and they that's it, they pop me and it's over, hallelujah. <laughs> at least I get to die in the act of having loved somebody who hated me, right? And, and that's what we're given the opportunity because I'm going to die anyway. How do I want to die? Right? How do how what do I want my life to count for something that it counts for the kingdom? That it's that to the end it's a reflection of the love of Christ? Yes. That's how I would answer the question. That reminds me of a quote I saw on Facebook that I can't remember who said it, but he said, You're worried about dying? Don't worry, you will. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So in the book you go through Constantine and soldiers and uh, police officers and all kinds of stuff, um, which is really good. So I recommend that everybody definitely go out and read the book. But we're running out of time. So I want to get <laughs> to the conclusion because I thought you it wasn't just a conclusion of this book. It was kind of a conclusion of the whole series. And it got me thinking and it gave me hope because you said you, you've kind of felt like your mission has been to introduce Christians to Jesus, which I thought like, oh, yes, totally. <laughs> And so you said with with your Jesus Unseries, you've tried to address the things that you thought were most destructive in evangelical culture, which was the dispensationalism, penal substitution, atonement theory, eternal conscious torment, submission to a hierarchy of authority, and infallibility and inerrancy of the Bible and political tribalism. I guess I've been thinking lately, you know, because we talk about it kind of, if you reject the message of Jesus or you have that flat Bible theory, you you tend to think that the wrath and anger of God is what it's all about and that that is kind of what's harmful. But then I think like, you know, there's there's Jewish people who don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, yet evangelicals statistically are the most likely to be in favor of war and torture and the death penalty and all these kinds of horrible things. So it's like, it's not just that you miss the message of Jesus. There's there's something else there that is like really destructive in this culture. And I can't really put my finger on it or how all of these toxic ideas are connected but I feel like th- there's some kind of like underlying thing that we need to root out and figure out like what is not only kind of blocking off American culture's actual following of Jesus, but somehow making us even worse than people who don't claim to believe in Jesus. Like, how is that possible? Well, I agree with you. I, I guess to me, it's still... It's one of these things where like, you know, it's really impossible to teach somebody something if they think they already know it, right? And this is why, this is my, my, my frustration, like I said, that's why I describe it, my mission, I feel like, is introducing Christians to Jesus, which is very hard to do because they think they already know. And they think Jesus is, you know, uh, like Kristen DeMay says, he's like John Wayne, or he's like the guy, he's like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. That's Jesus. Um, no, that's not Jesus. And so uh, it's really tough. Um, and again, I think it, it's this really complicated knot that has been tied over the last 
whatever, 1500 years at least, that within Christianity, we have, we have, um, built up all these other sort of strongholds or confusions, whether that's the Bible gets elevated above Jesus or the state gets elevated above Jesus or, uh, or whatever, all those different things, right? Um, this wrathful idea of God, um, all those kind of things. So all of that gets labeled Christian. And again, part of the problem is, is that when Christians say I'm a Christian or when they say that's not Christian or whatever, what they don't mean is Christ-like. What they misunderstood is that to be Christian is to be Christ-like. I, I almost wish people would just, you know, stop saying Christian, say Christ-like, and now see if it still makes sense, right? I am Christ-like. Oh, you are. Well, let's talk about it. what ways are you like Christ, right? What, what ways are you like Jesus? Or this is Christian. Oh, it is? Oh, show me Jesus in that, right? Like, again, we're a Christian nation. Oh, we're a Christ-like nation? Oh, let's talk about that. What are the ways that America, so let's start at the beginning, that we have been like Christ. Uh, you, you, you give me the list. I'll write them down. Ready? What's the first thing we did that was just like Jesus? Where do we love our enemy? Where do we bless those who curse us? Where do we, you know, do all these things? Well, oh, well, nowhere. Huh. So you sure we're Christ-like? So again, I, I just feel like it's like we, we have had all the, all the definitions, all the terminology has been redefined in our brains that we think we're talking about Jesus when we talk about what we believe. But we're not, no one has done the work to really dig down and see is what I believe based on Jesus. You could do this with almost anything. I, I've done this also with people in conversations where like, you know, you could just ask them, what do you believe about immigrants? What do you believe about the Middle East? Or what do you believe about Muslims? Whatever. Like, you can just pick a topic like that and, uh, and tell me what you believe about it. Christians. Ask Christians. What do you believe about this, right? And let them tell you. And then say, okay, that's fascinating. Now, what I want you to do is show me what, why do you know, what about what you believe, that conclusion you've reached is because of Jesus? What are the things about Jesus that have informed your conclusion? Again, tell me what they are. I'll write them down. What's the first thing? Well, because then they have nothing to say because they're not basing that on Jesus. They're, so again, I, I just want to, I want to challenge the idea. Are you following Jesus? You could say again, again, I take it all the way back to Constantine. Constantine redefined what it meant to be a Christian. It, before Constantine, you knew your neighbor was a Christian because of the way they lived. That person, well, they, they love people. They bless people. They take care of people that don't even love them. They bury pagans who weren't even Christian. They take care of, you know, abandoned babies that are they're not theirs, and they take care of them and raise them like their own and, and all these kind of things. That person must be a Jesus follower because look at that, the way they live their life, orthopraxy, right? But with Constantine, it gets redefined. Oh, you can be a Christian and do all kinds of horrible things. Just make sure you believe these doctrines. And if you believe these things, that makes you a Christian. Or put the Jesus symbol on your weapons. That's right. And then you're covered. Put a cross on your M16 or whatever, right? And they, they did that, right? During the Gulf War, yeah. they were selling the U.S. military, had guns from a, from a contractor that had scripture verses and crosses on them. What the hell? If you, yeah. if you think... Uh, I've, I've seen a little meme, like there's a bunch of uh, U.S. soldiers, you know, they're in uniform, and they're all standing around in a prayer circle, holding hands and praying. And um, I just want to say like, hey, listen, if you are getting, if you're holding hands and praying and asking Jesus to help you kill people, I don't think you understand Jesus. Like, that's not what you should be doing, because I don't think that's what he's there for. Yeah, I think I'm I'm still 
just wrestling with like how we got here. And I think it's an important question to keep asking, but to, to the hope I think we have is I think in this deconstruction movement, you know, it's not going to be perfect, No, but I saw a meme somewhere that, that said something along the lines of like the deconstruction movement is the revival that evangelicals are looking for, but they're not recognizing. Yes. And I think there's so much hope in that because it's really people saying, you, you know what, if, if we follow Christ, then we should be Christ-like. And, and it sh- shouldn't be about this hatefulness and this tribalism and this That's right. um, wanting to destroy the wicked and, and being constantly afraid all the time. So yeah, I think the fact that that movement is growing and, um, and people just want to kind of redefine what being a Christian means more close to what being a Christian meant in the first few hundred years of the church and stripping away kind of the things that have made it ugly and that have gotten us to to the place where being a Christian is more about who you hate. Yeah, I just think that we're moving in a good direction. And and Craig and I have talked recently about what's his name from Skillet declaring war on <laughs> deconstructing Christians. Oh, John Cooper. Yes, yes. Right. Yes, let's declare war on other people in the church who don't think like me. Again, is that Christ-like? Right. No. And just the refusal to even understand what the issue is or what their beliefs are. And and yeah, straw manning and, and purposefully misunderstanding where people are coming from. But um, but yeah, I see it as as a really good good thing that the movement is getting so huge and um I just see hope for the future that that it's it's going to be different. Yeah, I agree. I do. I totally agree. I, I I absolutely do agree that this whole deconstruction thing is a move of the Holy Spirit. It's it is probably what people have been praying for. It's just again not what they expected. But it yeah. is it is because people I talk to are deconstructing what they're they're not moving away from Jesus. They're they're, right. they're moving closer, and well, that's their desire. They they want to know what's true. They want to know God. They want to know more of who Christ is, and um and it's a good thing. In the long run, I think that's the best way to describe it. People are moving closer to Jesus when they're trying to deconstruct what they've been taught in the past. I mean, I think that's exactly what what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know I didn't know how to describe it, but you just described it for me, and I appreciate that because <laughs> I've, that's that's actually how I feel. I just didn't know how to put it out in words. But like Abby said, we're running out of time. So before I let you plug anything, Keith, I need to let everybody know before I get any emails at the bad Roman podcast at gmail.com. I do not hate the Bible. Right. I don't either. <laughs> I love the Bible. I love it. I adore the Bible. I read the Bible. No, love the Bible. I read it every day. I like what the Bible says. None of us hate the Bible. We love the Bible. <laughs> we just love Jesus more. <laughs> I've got a copy right here. And then I've got another one right here. One over there on the floor. I read it every day. Yes. All right. Books about yeah. it. Yeah. Just just before you send me any hate mail. Oh, it's so good. Just, yeah. 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 It's so good. I've got it on my phone. I've got it over the book. It's it's all over the place. <laughs> I got the David Bentley Hart New Testament for Christmas. I'm loving it so far. But yeah, Keith, go ahead and plug whatever you got to plug or want to plug, and then I'll let y'all get out of here. Well, again, thank you so much for you guys for having me on. I appreciate it so much. Um, well, let's see. You have a new podcast. I do have a new, uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I still do Heretic Happy Hour, uh, but uh, Matthew DiStefano and I have relaunched the uh, Apostates Anonymous podcast. It's a blast. It's so much fun. 
Uh, we do these fake, spo- at least ads. We made, we, we made up fake sponsors for every episode. It's it's a blast. We're having so much fun. <laughs> uh, but I do a solo podcast I started, and I really love this. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. So it's called Second Cup with Keith. It's on the Ethos Radio app. So if you have a, go go on your phone, either, you know, uh, Android or Apple, and you can go to your app store, uh, download the Ethos, E-T-H-O-S, Ethos Radio app. And um, you'll get, you know, you'll you'll get access to the Second Cup with Keith podcast. It's like 30 minutes. I cover really, you know, a lot of the stuff we talked about here uh, in some detail. And um, I have a second podcast on the Ethos Radio app also called Threads. And that's where I do interviews. I've got, there's tons of great interviews already on there. Brian Zahn, Brad Jerzak, Paul Young. Uh, there are a lot of great ones coming up. Derek Webb, Jennifer Knapp, a lot of really cool ones um, coming up in the queue. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm a podcasting fool. I have a tons, tons of podcasts going on. <laughs> and um, I'm working on my next book. But in the meantime, yeah, check out my Jesus Un series. Uh, they're available on Amazon. They're on print and Kindle and audiobook. And uh, yeah, check those out. All right, guys. Thanks for coming on. Abby, thanks for helping me uh, again, making this show better than what it was before. <laughs> and I will talk to you guys soon. God bless. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about the Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com.